Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. All right. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. I am joining you today with a special guest, Joaquin Boez, who some of you will probably recognize from uh, because you're a science fiction fan and you follow uh, him on Twitter because I'm sure there's a lot of you who do because Joaquin has got over close to 500 book reviews online of classic of science fiction from the 50s through the mid 80s and one of the things that got my attention is that his twitter handle like really does a great job of reminding you whose birthdays and who did the cover heart and all that stuff uh for classic science fiction so he's a really good follow on twitter but welcome welcome to postcards from a dying world thank you for having me yeah we're gonna talk about let's talk about um so your um, blog is called Science Fiction and Other Suspect Ruminations, and you've got close to 500 book reviews out there. So you've done a lot of writing about science fiction, probably more writing about science fiction than a lot of academics who study it specifically um, in the field, right? Uh, so why, why 1950 through mid-80s? Why that era? That's a really good question. Uh, so... I got into my site in part because I needed a outlet when I was writing for my PhD. And, and so I am an obsessive person and I found this moment in time, which really, really speaks to me. And so ultimately the historian in me will kick in and there are historical trends which come out of World War II, which really I find transfixing. and. The, the number one sort of trend which pops into my mind is the television. Just no technology has penetrated American society sort of faster than the TV. Uh, and so the explosion of suburbs, uh, the experiences of veterans returning home, and of course this connects to Korea and, and Vietnam, and those sort of macro historical ideas, and, and of course issues like civil rights, and right. so science fiction in that moment in time is attempting to tackle this rapidly transforming world in the post-World War II uh, sort of moment. And to steal a phrase I love, it's like the death of a victory culture. This idea that mm. perhaps the United States is not going to be victorious in everything. And this sort of cynicism leaking into the science fiction, it just makes me very excited. <laughs> right. Well, and we'll, <laughs> we'll get back into those themes specifically when we talk about some of our favorite works from that era. And but one of the things that you're making me think of is when I toured Berkeley to mm -hmm. um, to see all the different places that Phil K. Dick lived and grew up. And one of the interesting things was that, you know, we saw an ad for the record store that he worked at that, you know, one of the big things that they did was sell the first TVs in Berkeley. <laughs> right. And absolutely. Like, yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see like how um, like being um, a, a TV salesperson in the early days, like uh, you can see some of the um, kind of leaking into the way his salesmen operate, you know? Um, yeah, no, he absolutely has moments in some of his stories where like, I, I think I'm pretty sure you can correct me, you know, far more. Most of my folk edic happened before I started writing about science fiction. So I don't have this memory device at my fingertips, but in Ubik sort of, uh, you have in your dreams advertisements. Right, and, right. and anything like that sort of, uh, I feel is directly connected to sort of experiences as, as you said, like working in this store, this selling TVs. Right, and um, yeah, and so we'll, we'll get more into the themes of that era because it is a very specific time and, you know, and what was going on in the world affects science fiction. And I agree with you. One of the reasons why I like retro science fiction is because it is, for me personally, 
it is a snapshot not of the era but what someone of the era was trying to extrapolate about the future makes it a very Mm -hmm. unique thing it means that these futures that you're reading about in these books can only exist only exist in these books Mm -hmm. you know and it's interesting and as for the end date the 80s i don't really have a good answer it's it's before i was born the mid 80s before i was born and I get tired of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher and sort of that that's as their times in office were going on. And so that's sort of the reason for the, the 1985 cutoff. And, and to be clear, I, I've sort of tracked some authors and visions on either side of these boundaries, but yeah. I, I use it as a, a good sort of rule of thumb for what I'm really interested in mapping. Mm-hmm. So um, now you studied history and um, as, as a, you know, as a, you know, learning history, how has that affected how you read and write about science fiction? So not getting into too many details about my PhD topic, but it 100% had to deal with these issues of encyclopedism mm-hmm. and gathering and organizing data and knowledge. And so I'd, I'd like to think sort of what I studied has inspired the apparatus of the site and, and the, the collation of resources, like lists of generation ship stories and stuff like that. Um, and so that, there's that one level. But at another level, um, sometimes in, in discussions of reviews, people will point out, you seem far more excited about the story than the rating you gave it. And that, that's because yeah. the historical sort of context is really exciting me versus the delivery of the story. And so I am in no way on some trek to find the best of the best and to read all the best things. Uh, and part of the exploration of a, a theme is part of the fun and mm-hmm. what I get out of it versus the quality of the story. Of course, I find amazing masterpieces along the way, and I'm happy to talk about why they are masterpieces in my yeah. reviews. Yeah, we'll get into but, that. No, yeah. no, now, I had the same thing because, you know, I write reviews too, and, and when a lot of times when I read a book, I don't necessarily like it as much as I convince myself to like it mm-hmm. when I'm writing about it later, because you think about things that, oh, that didn't occur to me when I was reading. But mm-hmm. when you're writing about it, and there are times where I have changed my star rating. Do you often, do you ever do that after writing about a book? Absolutely. The part, part of me thinking about a novel is writing through it. And so I don't, I don't, so I have a sort of gut reaction, but then the process of really thinking about why you love something uh, or dislike something mm-hmm. comes out in the writing. So I, I feel like the writing process is part of me coming to get grips with the story itself. And so, yes, I change ratings all the time in the and, writing process. And I'm sure you're like me now that you've re- written all these reviews that there are times where when you, you, I'm sure you dog ear pages and make sure that you're like, oh, I'm coming back to this part or like, do you make notes? Yeah. So this is one reason why I am a very slow writer. And this is again, my training, maybe it shouldn't be sort of cropping its head, but I annotate as I read. Mm-hmm. And then I spend a good six hours going back through the book, taking right quotes, quotes, sometimes eight, nine, 10 pages. And then I write the review. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, so- <laughs> your, your, review, your reviews are thorough. And I, I've always like, and a lot of times I, I, I read just a little bit and then say, mm-hmm. I mark a book and say on Goodreads, like, oh, I'm going to read that and I'm going to come back you know, and a lot of times, you know, that's when I'll go back to your reviews and read the whole thing when I've read the book. But, um, and I will say, I have added a lot of books to my Goodreads uh, to read list from, from, from your blog. So, um, so let's talk about where the pen name comes from. So around when I started, so this must've been 2010, second year of, second semester of getting my PhD. I, read two novels. Uh, one is really good, and that is uh, Russell Hoban, best known for Ridley Walker, but he wrote 
uh, the lion of, of Boaz Joaquin and Joaquin Boaz. And it's more magical realism than science fiction with these mystical maps, these magical maps in them. And uh, one of the maps is a guide to places where you can find inspiration. And there's this amazing map. It's like these Borgesian map of, of sort of magical locations. And so that's, so I just took it from the title. Uh, but then simultaneously, Barrington Bailey, a, a new wave British science fiction author, he wrote a far less, but still fascinating novel called The Pillars of Eternity in 1982, where a character is dramatically like scarred and has to come up with a name for himself. And it, he comes up with the name Walking Boaz. And ultimately, they're the pillars of the Temple of Solomon and it's Masonic. I don't care about any of that background, but those two. But those two novels I was reading, that same name came up. And I'm like, that's the perfect, that's where the pen name came from. Well, and most people just assume that that that's your name floating around. So that's good. Um, and don't don't know like the deep cut reference. And so that's a great deep cut reference. So, and of course, the first time you mentioned it with um, in the Cora Bullard uh, interview, mm -hmm. right? Like from that, when I read that, I was like very fascinated or interested to read that story. So I know it got added to my Goodreads list for for that, but it is it is pretty deep cut reference. So. Russell Hoban's great. I highly recommend. And, and Ridley Ridley Walker is the post apocalyptical one with all that strange invented uh, sort of words and everything. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, it sounds like interesting stuff. Now. Uh, now, sometimes you do series or focuses for, you know, a little while on certain themes. And I know I've done the same thing, too. Uh, I did, a, a, you know, speculative war on terror novels for a while, like, and ended up writing an article about them. And I've been collecting moonshot novels, pre-Apollo moonshot novels, to, to threatening to do the same thing one day. Um, but, because uh, I think that's going to be a real fascinating thing when I get into it. What, what are some of the series or different focuses that you've done over the years? So the very first one was a generation ship short story review series. And I had, I had read most of the best known. So for example, Nonstop by Brian Aldiss and Captive Universe by Heinlein and others like that. Uh, and so I sort of inspired by that, I decided to, to just focus on short stories, which were available online. So the idea was that I would have people who would read along with me. My big problem is I don't have a schedule. <laughs> Sometimes they would occur three months later. And however, the stories are there and anybody can sort of follow along with the discussion as we went. And I'm to the point where I'm almost complete within my time range because there are these peaks of generationship stories and they sort of taper out in the eight in the in the 70 short stories right. and then come back in the the 80s and so that's one of them and what I've what I'm currently doing is a sort of media exploration series where I'm exploring advertising uh sort of new forms of music pumped into the head and all, all different types of sort of representations of media and science fiction within the same date range. And I've also done a particular author. So I followed Carol M. Schwiller's short stories chronologically, which appeared in genre magazines uh, up until the new wave movement. And I, I will return to that series when I gathered the strength to dive into some of her really cryptic but amazing <laughs> 60s, mid 60s visions. Mm, yeah, well, and the generationship one is important because, like, to, to see how it evolved and 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 went on because it's such an important part of the genre, mm. which is still going today. You know, obviously, we still have, you know, people writing generationship novels. They don't, they don't, and some of you know, one of my favorite 21st century science fiction novels is, is the kind of the heart and the dagger or the knife and the dagger. Knife in the Heart of the Generation Ship mm -hmm. um, with uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Aurora, right? And like, I think that because he's so learned in, in the old school that mm -hmm. it, it, it would be interesting to look at Aurora compared to 
you know, everything that came before because he was digesting so much of that in, the, in that novel. I don't know if you've read that one because I know it's outside of your time range. <laughs> so Yeah, no, the, the last time I read newer science fiction was back in the early 2000s. At one point, I read far more widely. I, I want to correct myself with titles. Harry Harrison wrote uh, Captive Universe and right. Heinlein's is Orphans of the Sky. Right, right. Which is, but yeah. The, yeah, so the, the series is fascinating because not only do you track some of the main sort of themes which are always present in so many generation ship stories, but then you see all the sort of subversive takes on it. And it is fascinating and I would not doubt that he is picking up on uh, many of them. And I find them, I like to use the phrase, a strange experiment in authoritarianism. They really creep me out, generation ship short stories, because they create these authoritarian sort of vistas of social control and eugenics often, and really, really dark themes, which are then couched in colonizing the universe for the good of humanity. And I love that sort of disturbing tension, which emerges from generation ship short stories. Well, it's the microcosm world thing mm -hmm. of it. And I know, for example, a recent one was The Unkindness of Ghosts by River Solomon and their take on this generation ship thing. Like a lot of people were like, well, why did they do this generation ship novel when it was basically about the antebellum South? But, you know, it, it was this kind of surreal way of just like putting people in this microcosm and put in this small environment. And, you know, that's one of the things that the generation ship novel, novel, short story, whatever, has been doing, like, as long mm -hmm. as it's existed, right? And I, I do think that that's fascinating and interesting about the generation ship stories. So of the generation ship stories, which, which are the ones that you most highly recommend? Which are your absolute favorites? Um, absolute favorites. That's so hard for me. So... I'll, I'll give most interesting, one. most interesting. Yeah. So Vonda and McIntyre, she is best known for the Hugo winning dream snake. However, she also wrote a spectacular generation ship short story in one of the few of the 1970s. It really had ended the glut of the stories by then, but before its later renaissance. I, I would and, actually argue that she is most well known for writing Star Trek novelizations, unfortunately. <laughs> that's, that's sad. I mean, Dreamsnake is, it, is fantastic. Is and yeah, I can talk about that one later, but like, but it's called Mountains of Sunset, the Mountains of Dawn, 1974. It appeared in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And all it does is have aliens on a generation ship. And so rather than a hydroponics bay, which is ubiquitous, you know, growing vegetables, there are cages of animals. And these are like meat eating winged aliens who are used to flight on this world. And then of course, within the generation ship, uh, the elder is noticing that the youth and generation struggle, of course, always present in generation ship short stories, uh, are no longer flying and just craves returning to the surface and eating this animal. And it's this incredibly visceral, intense with aliens in a generation ship short story. It works so well. And it's this very unique twist on, on the formula um, and highly recommended. It appears in her, her short story collection, Fireblood. So it should be accessible to many people. Um, it's really, really solid. As for others, as for others, let me think, let me think. There are so, so many which uh, intrigue me. So one of the ones I also enjoy is uh, Frank M. Robinson's The Oceans Are Wide, 1954. I, I sort of enjoyed it because it's about the creation of a dictator for the generation ship story and this sort of laboratory of authoritarianism. But Robinson, who was a speechwriter for Harvey Milk, of all people, 
yeah. <laughs> fascinating character. Should be he he wrote a generation ship novel in the 1990s mm. as well, which I don't know how much is sort of connected to this. Uh, he it, and so, but he's fascinating. Um, but it is about sort of creating this dictator over the course of the the story. So again, it is aware of the moral issues of generationship short stories by their very nature. So it's it's really, so who, really good. Who, who is this author? I'm not, I'm not Frank M. Robinson. Frank M. Frank Robinson. M. Robinson. Okay. Um, and yeah, so he might be best now known now for what he wrote in the 90s, which okay. um was a generationship novel, um, which might be playing with some of the same ideas. Mm, okay. It's really solid. I, I don't know that I've I've read uh, any of his work, but the fact that he, I mean, he worked for Harvey Milk makes me curious, of course, um, partially because he's just a Bay Area writer and I'm interested in the Bay Area writers, of course. Um, all right, so the, so the novel is The Dark Beyond the Stars, 1991. That's the generation ship novel. The story mm-hmm. um, is The Oceans Are White, 1954. So he has this incredibly long writing career from the early 50s all the way until the 90s. Well, one thing that you do, and I really appreciate this, and, and I, I admit I'm just as guilty of this as, as, as everyone else that I'm complaining about, but um, you are really incredible about like doing the work for finding out who the cover artists are and giving respect to the cover artists. Because a lot of times to me, I'm just like everybody else, they're just like the cover is there, it's just, it's the cover. And mm-hmm. being that I'm currently working with an artist trying to, come up with a cover for my next book i know how much hard work that can be and how much effort an artist can put into a book then again sometimes you have the same artwork being used for dune and three stigmata so who knows so um but uh you know talk to me about the importance that you find for, for for doing that because you you've you've um you've definitely given respect to to the cover artists along the way so what's your philosophy on that like like many readers, I didn't really care much about the art of a cover. And uh, however, I kept on coming across Powers, Richard Powers, the surreal, fascinating, made Ballantine books into this like visually stunning sort of series, uh, sort of responding to ex- experimental and avant-garde art in a way which covers usually didn't at the time. And with him, I became more interested in the artists as well. I have interviewed, I, I don't do a lot of interviews on my site, but I have uh, interviewed um, artists before and and their art. And while I am interested in the art, of course, I, I of course really am mostly interested in the text, but I do feel like it is worth uh, giving credit. and. I, I won't lie, it just comes from obsessively worried about whether I was plagiarizing while I was writing <laughs> academic texts and citing <laughs> every single thing. <laughs> and that is part of it as well. Um, and I, I will point out that pe- people are really interested now in the sort of aesthetic of sort of uh, 50s and 60s science fiction art, even if they might not be as interested in the texts. And I, I find that if that is another way that people can engage with my content, that I will do it the same service I try to give uh, the texts. Yeah, and you do a good job of picking the good covers for editions and like making sure that they're the ones that get people's attention. And and yeah, sometimes it is the art that gets that gets people's attention. And um, and there's no there's nothing wrong with that. That's what the that's what the artwork was supposed to be doing. <laughs> at the time although we have a lot of fun on on dickheads with a lot of the early pkd stuff like the artwork just does not compute with <laughs> with what you've got in the book there are yeah. recently i reviewed uh matheson's i am legend and it's one of the classics which had escaped me mm-hmm. earlier in my reading before i start writing about science fiction and looking through all the covers, you know, sometimes it's only the foreign art, which from other nations, which sort of picks up on like the main sort of creepy themes in the novel. And so in, in my review, I point out that the Portuguese cover artist, Lima de Freitas, one of my absolute favorite cover artists. 
And he's the only one who gets like the weird, weird sexual content of I Am Legend, which is so present in the first two thirds of the book uh, with his art in 19, uh, I think it's 58, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I feel sometimes you look at the cover and you're like, no, absolutely. The artist did not know much about what this book was about. And then you get one where like, no, they narrow in completely on the disquieting themes of this story, even if it is a surreal Richard Powers-esque uh, avant-garde piece of art. Well, we had, uh, I had on um, John Scolari who collects I Am Legend editions, like he has over like two or three hundred. He the Portuguese one? I'm, he needs I, the Portuguese I'm, one. I'm for sure he does because uh, cool. he, he has like almost everything. But he said that there, and I haven't been able to track it down, but that there's a low budget Spanish ad adaptation of I Am Legend as a movie from like the 70s or something that he says is the is the best adaptation and i still need to track that down but um i've only yeah. seen the first two and they have faded from my memory other than heston in omega yeah. man right right so <laughs> well yeah we'll come back to the to i am legend because it's one of my favorites and i'm curious on your take as somebody who who reads because I, I i'm a horror guy too so and where that line science fiction horror with i am legend happens well, I guess we can get into it now. Um, we, can, we can get into books since you just recently read I Am Legend. Uh, for me, I Am Legend uh, is one of the greatest vampire novels ever written. It's weird because it does kind of cross the lines between science fiction and horror. And one of the things that's fascinating about it, and I know this only because I, I was able to, to meet Matheson three times, um, two of which were signings, one of which was was you know uh more of a conversation and at the second signing i mentioned to him how powerful the the scene with the dog was right the chapter with the dog and he mentioned offhandedly when we were talking that he had written that not that that novel for a class at ucla um in 1954 and it's really curious for me that, first of all, the book holds up extremely well for a novel written mm. in the 50s, I believe. I think the only thing that really kind of dates it is when the mention of the nuclear war of 1978, just kind of offhandedly mentioned. But he also told that story that I Am Legend was that that chapter with the dog that the teacher made him read that to the whole class. Wow. And pointed to him and said, this folks is a writer and how that was like one of the things. But it's crazy to me to think about that book being written by somebody who was still considering himself an amateur mm. enough to take a class at UCLA and to try to get a critique there. He had already published um, a noir novel at the time, but he hadn't really published science fiction yet, even though. I think I have short stories and I think there's some earlier short stories, but yeah. I don't know the exact sort of chronology of publication about when I Am Legend came yeah, out he, first. He definitely sold stories to Boucher yeah. and to Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction. I know that for sure. But to consider it was so early in his career, that's what I find so fascinating about I Am Legend now, as opposed to when I was younger, I just thought, oh, this is a killer story, right? So what was your take on I Am Legend? I haven't read your review yet. I've been saving it. Right off the bat, I read it as a nuclear fear allegory. And like right off, right off the bat. And I feel that it picks up on a lot of 1950s fear relating to the family unit, where if the family unit breaks down in an apocalypse or whatever it might be, that you enter this bizarre sexual landscape. And just think about the phrases which came out of the 1950s, like bikinis, or somebody's a bombshell, or the, this sort of fears relating to female sexuality in the post-apocalyptic wasteland. And I see it as like profoundly 50s in that sense, because he is in the same house 
sort of remembering domestic bliss and happiness. And he is perpetually tempted by the female vampire outside of the door. Like the entire, like that struck me as so strange when I was like reading it. Um, and so I thought that that element did place it firmly in the 50s, but in a, in a really fascinating mm. way. And as for vampires and this desperate attempt, which I've been told is very similar to Blindsight and other uh, sort of takes on vampires in the more modern era relating to coming up with this scientific explanation, I grew tired of that element of, of the book because I want, I, like I read it much more allegorically about sort mm -hmm. of 50s fears of apocalypse. Also, I found it, and this is common in some of Matheson's other short stories, there's a sort of running critique of the suburban existence where at the end, not to give spoilers, but it is sort of a dance macabre of a decaying, the last man in the last surviving house playing out a last gasp at the, uh, the family as it crumbles and a new generation takes over. Mm -hmm. And all of those elements are fantastic. And of course, I felt some reviewers at the time I was reading about sort of contemporary, like reviewers pointed out how they had like cardboard characters. And none of that really made sense to me. It is, it feels like a profoundly uh, intense study of grief. And mm -hmm. in, in a way which I don't see very common, like in a lot of other 50s work. Um, and so at that level, I did feel like it was an effective character study as well of coming to grips with mm. not only the death of one's family, but the, the sort of passing of a generation. Well, and one of the things that we know from that time is that this was when... Uh, you know, Matheson had brought the family out to try and make it in television and to, to, and to, to write. And, you know, they went from living in Brooklyn to living um, in Burbank. And so that suburbia thing, I think, was was to do with, you know, he had a young family and they were starting out in, in Burbank. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know Scolari, the guy uh, that's the I Am Legend expert, he is desperately like searching to lock down the exact house that Matheson was living in and writing about when he wrote it. But the thing is, is that they have the address as it was, but the street name changed and the numbers on all the houses changed. Um, so he's having a heck of a time trying to, like they know the exact block that it's on, but trying to figure out exactly which house it which was. House? Cause it's um, Matheson's children, they're all still alive, but they were quite young <laughs> at the time. Mm -hmm. um so so they know the block and whatever it's interesting but it is interesting to, to think about it and and you know you can see like some of the differences in how you analyze books and where i i'm always <laughs> looking at the personal stories and how it personally connects like yeah. what was one of the reasons why i you know that tour that i took of berkeley was so important to me for like putting so much of the early pkd like you know seeing the francisco house where you know that inspired time out of joint and all that was real fascinating for me and like you know a real hardcore thing so let's go through some of the some who are somebody just by author who are some of your favorite authors with novels in this era like and i know because i know you've reviewed it's funny because anytime i <laughs> you're really good about every time i'm like oh here's this new john bruner book i read or bought you're like oh here's the the, the, the john <laughs> bruner reviews or here's the maltzberg reviews in, um, you know, which was good because I know when I read Revelations, for example, mm -hmm. by Barry Maltzberg, like I, I was really excited to see that even though it was a lesser book and it wasn't one of my favorites, like to see that you had written a review of it. And I had somebody to talk on Twitter to <laughs> about the book besides my buddy D. Harlan Wilson, who edited the new edition of it and it was too close to the source material, right? So... <laughs> Um, so yeah, tell, tell me who, who are some of your favorite authors? So I have a whole range of favorite authors, but John, John Bruner, uh, Stand on Zanzibar, not reviewed on my site, really was what began my love affair with New Wave. That is my all-time favorite. 
it, it ranks among mine as well. You've already mentioned Varian Maltzberg, but also authors like Tanith, Tanith Lee, her six, her set, um, sorry, her 70s science fiction, I find very appealing. And Johanna Roos, not only the female man, but we who are about to, and others like that. A lot of the lesser known feminist novels like Susie McKee Charnas Walks the End of the World. Uh, but unfortunately for Charnas, she never really returns to science fiction very regularly. Uh, mm -hmm. She's sort of characterized as a novelist who never returns to the same territory and rather just tries something completely new. And so I, I feel like the hold fast sequence of novels. Um, I mean, she didn't write, I, I like an author often, I can like dive into hundreds of short stories and everything like that. And so I, I so, but Charnas's Walk to the End of the World is fantastic. Um, so those really are my favorites. There are, there are some others which maybe can be described more as mainstream authors like William Kotzwinkel, Dr. Rat is an all time favorite 1976, it won a World Fantasy Award. This must be the strangest winner of a World Fantasy Award ever. It is really <laughs> spectacular because, again, encyclopedism, I like, so Mockingbird, for example, is what I would describe as a, quote, encyclopedic novel. By where Walter Tevis, just to be clear, yeah. Yeah, by Walter Tevis, where there are particular details which are, provide like, every permutation of them is described in an encyclopedic sort of tendency. And in Dr. Rat, it is fake scientific articles. In Tevis, it is references to silent films and all different forms of reading. Uh, and so any novel which often touches on issues like that, I find very appealing. But Revelations, I would argue, is in the top three Maltzberg novels uh, because of its media themes and, um, it, it is really spectacular. Actually, uh, Revelations is the good one. No, there was one that I read, The Last Transaction. That was the one I was thinking of that was not great. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, that's the one with the Trump-esque president. But maybe it's just in the whole impact of that novel in our moment of time. Just, it, it's not impactful. Like, this is this horrific presidential char like character but in our contemporary world, it just comes off as... Yeah, it was <laughs> the last transaction. <laughs> yeah, Revelations is a great one. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I should, I misspoke. But the last transaction no was the one that I remember reading and and like you were the only other person I knew who had read that one. Even even D. Harlan Wilson, who's published Barry mm -hmm. and, and worked with him, had not read that one. It was only you and I. And I read it partially because for the same reason is that when I saw it on the shelf at a used bookstore, I was mm -hmm. like, this sounds Trump-like. I got I got to check this out. Yeah, yeah it was for, any, for any listeners, it's a sort of surreal autobiography of a death of president on his deathbed and his sort of accidental rise to power and his lack of any real moral code or ideology. Yeah. And it, it, it is not shocking <laughs> in today's world, it, like uh, Maltzberg maybe intended it. Um, <laughs> right. Christopher, Christopher Priest is another author who I find myself returning to all the time. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And then I'll give one, one more, Craig Street. Craig mm -hmm. Street, nominated for three Nebula Awards, one of the few Native American authors active in the, in the 70s. Mm, I have to check his work. Short out. stories only. Short stories only. Short stories only. Okay, that's probably why I haven't yeah. yet known that name. Um, well, with any other thing that you're, that Maltzberg thing is bringing up for me is that um, as somebody who is a huge devotee of, of the Sheep Look Up and uh, as a mm -hmm. Bruner guy, it's funny because I I the first time I very seriously read the Sheep Look Up. I mean, I read it, but I wasn't really old enough or able to get it the first time so the second time i read it was in the bush era right the george mm -hmm. w bush era and then reread it for the podcast during the trump era and it's interesting because it, when in the bush era i was like oh my god he's writing about the he's writing about this time mm -hmm. and then at the same time reading it in the trump era it also like holy shit he's writing about this time <laughs> right 
and and there's this aspect with the with the social satire that's going on in in Sheep Look Up or uh, uh, Bug Jack Baron. You know, some of these books, uh, revelations that are written like during these times that make them like seem more relevant at different times and eras. And it's really interesting to read retro science fiction that way. Um, so what are some of the ones that, that just, you really feel like um, kind of speak to these times in a way that, that maybe people haven't considered? That's a, that's a good question because it, it's an operation, which I, don't do automatically like I don't right because of the historian in me I tend not to look at the book and and sort of identify or, or directly attempt to read something because I think it will be or I want it to be relevant to the present um I do look at things as and I I say they can only be written when they were written like novels yeah anything written can only be written when it was written um however I, I read Theodore Sturgeon's short story, um, and now the news. I haven't written about it yet, but it will be in my media series. It is 1956, and it's about a man addicted to listening to the news. Mm. And he wakes up in the morning. He listens to it on the way to work on the radio. Or at breakfast, sorry, his wife brings him the newspapers. It's also a satire of suburbia. His wife brings him the newspapers. He reads them. He listens on his way to work to the radio. He comes home. He turns on the TV and watches the news. He knows his entire life and sort of emotional experiences are moderate, mediated through the news. And then he has a breakdown. This um, like informational overload cuts him. And he can't interpret or interact with the world without the media, without like sort of engaging with the news and the emotional sort of struggles of people he's listening to and all of that. And then he just goes off and lives in the woods. Like he has this breakdown, he stops talking, he, he leaves his family uh, and a, psych a, a psychiatrist tracks him down and attempts to reintegrate him into society with cataclysmic results. It's sort of about the creation of a radical, of somebody like radicalized by constant inundation of, of media. Um, and I found that his, this sort of constant gratification of social media felt like this story, like the, if you were to update the story, it would be social media in place right. of the news. Also, with the Ukraine conflict, it, I have never sort of experienced like this blow by blow of every single thing happening and the sort of emotional overload, which I myself felt just constantly because it was a invasion which was documented every second of it online for us to cons like consume. And, well, and there's a and one of the reasons yeah. for that is because that uh, as being the 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 nation that went into another country, you know, our media doesn't want to show every minute of the Iraq mm. or, or Afghanistan, but they will certainly sell ads showing every minute of Ukraine until people mm. get bored of it, because it's not nothing that they have to feel guilty about, right? So, yeah, and I, I'm yeah, I'm also sort of referencing like for for a while I would like follow in, in Kiev like newspapers mm -hmm. and what they were publishing and sort of from within the country itself. But so this story really resonated in a sort of in, in that way yeah. because I too felt myself just getting carried away by the constant inundation. And I feel this like whenever there's an election year or something like that as well. But the the sort of information overload which occurs in Theodore Sturgeon's and now the news really felt felt relevant in the modern era. So one of the things we discovered by doing bonus episodes on Heinlein is that we are not really Heinlein fans that we just really do not like Heinlein's work very much and 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 you know I respect what he what he's mm -hmm. done for for the community and you know 
but at the same time, like I kind of learned what a crypto fascist he was and like all that kind of weird stuff. Is there anybody who you've just really like through this process, like, Ooh, no, I consistently do not like this author or somebody you, you just maybe liked at one time, but lost respect for, or just whose work just mm-hmm. didn't appeal to you. Well, Heinlein was an author of my late teens. So I didn't really read in my earlier teens science fiction at all. I mean, I had read random books like Currents of Space by Isaac Asimov. Did not like it at the time. Uh, And so never really returned to science fiction. So what I read eventually when I got to science fiction was essentially what my dad had on his shelf when he was 14. And that's what I had access to at my grandfather's house. I would go there and see the books. And then when I went to like bookstores, my dad would point out what he remembered, but he stopped reading science fiction at 14. And so I would just start with those authors. Now it's sort of the reverse. I send him every one of my favorite novels and he reads it. Uh, and Heinlein was one of those authors that he read religiously and that you know kids did in the 70s. And so I read, I don't know, I've read 20 of his novels, you know, 50 plus short stories, all before mostly before my site. I think I've only reviewed a handful of things on my site, but he is an author whom I do not have any plans on returning to. And I don't, he, he, he is, people are possessed by nostalgia and I, I don't have nostalgia for a lot of the earliest science right, fiction right. I've read. I just, I just, I just don't. Um, and so Highland is an author. I'm not I don't plan on returning to, I mean, if it's in an anthology, I tend to read the short story if it's in an anthology or, or something like that, yeah. or if it fits directly one of my themes, for example, example the generation ship uh, short story themes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm not one. saying, I'm, not saying yeah. I'm completely anti-Highland. Mm-hmm. Like I, yeah. there's things that I liked in, in Moon is a Heart's Mistress, but, it, but for the most part, I, I wasn't a fan. So one, one last thing, like real topic to dig into before uh we start to wrap things up a little bit but um for for uh how how do you acquire books well let's talk about shopping because because here's the thing that you you and i are people who collect vintage books so we have a you know you and i have an experience or can talk about a Mm -hmm. thing that maybe would appeal to our listeners because there's they're doing the same thing so like we're all out there competing for the same last uh, copies of some of these books. Um, how do you acquire your books or, and do you do a lot online? Uh, you know, wh- where do you find the material? Yeah. So I, I obviously post pictures of what I buy on Twitter and some people say, I don't have a bookstore like which has those books at all. And that's like one of my number one rules. When I go to a bookstore, use bookstore, I don't look for particular things. I have authors who I generally like and things which I don't own. And thus I tend to always find things at used bookstores, although they might not be on my list. And for things which I must have on my list, I do use a variety of online uh, locations, but uh, even you can just email. I have friends, for example, in Chicago who own bookstores and I just ask them what they have and buy them online from directly from used bookstores mm-hmm. as well. But also, I hate books and Amazon. I, maybe I don't want to support those things, but sometimes it is worth. I, I you do can find them. Yeah, I can find them occasionally. eBay, and so I don't have one source. I also on my travels to various cities and just on vacation, whatever it might be, I always stop in in used bookstores as well. Um, and so I have. I am open to any way to acquire them. And I use them all. Yeah, and, I, I'm, lucky. I'm lucky. I'm lucky because we have three used bookstores that that get often get vintage collections that people like sell entire collections when family members mm-hmm. die to, um, which is kind of sad. But at the same time, uh, verbatim books in San Diego they get collections mm-hmm. all the time. Um, uh, footnote books here in San Diego, and then we have artifacts in Encinitas, which I just recently discovered. Shout out to Greg uh, at Artifact. Uh, shout out to Justine at Verbatim. Th- these stores, like when I go in there, it's just, you know, I, I go, I automatically look Spinrad, Maltzberg, 
you know, uh, Bruner and, and just, you know, to see, you know, what there is, um, John Shirley, of course. Um, but, you know, and, and my recent trip to Portland, of course, I, you know, checked out Powell's and, and for me, I, yes, I can, you can order these books online, but it's so much cooler if you find them in the wild, mm. you know, yeah, I agree. Yeah. And so if there's one that I absolutely that, that it's a part of like, that we need it for the podcast or we need it for something. If I cannot find it locally, then um, yeah, I will, I will order from, from Abe or for like, for example, the, the happening worlds of John Bruner, which was a textbook about John Bruner from the seventies. You know, obviously I had to find that online. (laughs) I couldn't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I'm just not gonna, gonna find that. And, you know, super glad I did. Uh, but you know, there's just certain things you're, you're just, you're just going to have to find online. Plus I love sci-fi masterwork editions. So, um, if I can get those and I know not everybody loves those covers, but I, yeah. Yeah. So the other thing is uh, most magazines have been digitized on internet archive. And I find myself using that all the time. If, if I have the one thing I do not acquire are magazines yeah, like there are too many of them. I, I have a limited quantity of space, and so I sort of draw the line there. And for, and so sometimes digitized magazines on Internet Archive are really the way to go. And so all of my review series is will link those so that people can read along. Um, yep. And so that that I try to do. And yeah, um, yeah and shout out to Jesse from SF. F audio mm-hmm. he's digitized a lot of magazines yeah it's indispensable it's indispensable yeah um and really helpful for research and you can you can search you can if you they might are they might be clunky to use the apparatus for example on internet archive but you can do like word searches and one, one of the nerdiest things that i've ever like with with jesse like when when i said i you know when i looked up in the internet speculative database mm-hmm. that Walter Tevis had written a letter to like for forbidden planet or fantastic adventures or something in mm-hmm. the night when he was 12 years old and Jesse had it like, and I was just like, Oh my God, that's so awesome. You know? And it wasn't that impressive of a letter, but it was impressive mm-hmm. to see that, you know, he had written this letter when he was 12 years old, because a lot of times as, as a guy who wrote just as many mainstream novels as he did science fiction novels with Tevis, for me, it was interesting to see that he, just like a lot of the other science fiction writers, he was a boy who just like grew up loving those pulp magazines. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. You know, and that was just cool to see. So, you know, but um, so what, what are your plans reading for the, like, do you, do you have the next couple of months planned ahead of your, I, I'm not a planner. I, 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 I always say I'm a reader of whim and my whim can change 60 pages into a novel and I can put it down. And it wasn't because I didn't like it. It's just, I wasn't feeling it at that exact moment. I do have plans to continue the media series, but as for novel length work, length works, I really spend about an hour and stare at my shelves to pick something uh, when I need it. Uh, And so, however, I have some things on the horizon. Uh, For example, I'm really, I'm going to continue. I have uh, Zoe Fairbain's Benefits, 1979, which in our post-Row world is a fascinating take on, like Handmaid's Tale, on sort of controlling women. And so I have that really on the docket to um, pick up. And other than that, I'm going to continue. One series I didn't really mention is sort of uh, Scandinavian science fiction. And I've read uh, P.C. Jersild and Sven Holm and all different sort of Scandinavian science fiction and translation in the 70s and 80s. And I, another mainstream author, his name is, I don't know how to, I apologize for pronunciation, Peter Walu. He wrote a bunch of sort of Scandinavian noir novels, but he also writes some about the rise of fascism in Scandinavia. And so those are also on the docket. Okay, so I'm gonna do a rapid fire 
And I'm going to name some authors and I want you to tell me uh, what you think is their most interesting work or the one that that you've written about. And if you haven't, you can just say, uh, not that one. Um, so uh, let's start with Bruner. You said you're a big stand on Zanzibar guy, right? Um, so Bruner, what's what's the most interesting one to you? Is that stand on Zanzibar? Or? Do you want a non-traditional an answer? Sure. I'll pick a short story for fun. Yeah. Uh, nobody asked you, axed, A-X-E-D. Nobody asked you. It's a fantastic, uh, again, a media short story about uh, a starlet. It's fantastic. Highly recommended. Okay. Uh, PKD. Oh, goodness. Pete, Philip K. Dick was definitely an author I read before I started writing about science fiction, but the ones which really, really come to, the ones I always say that I like the most, Martian Time Slip, it's fantastic. I like any of the ones which deal with mental illness in a very explicit way. Ah, uh, so Clans of the Alphane Moon, something like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Uh, Cord Smith. He is not an author I have read extensively. Okay. Um, Judith Merrill. Judith Merrill, uh, her sequence of generation ship short stories, which were supposed to be a novel, which never came about. Mm -hmm. Wish Upon the Star is the best of the three. Uh, absolutely fantastic. I'm looking at my shelf. Eldris Bundry. Hmm. I've actually read some of his work recently, uh, but as for a favorite, I don't really, he is, tends to be more hit or miss for me, but there are short stories, which I have found really appealing, whose names are escaping me. Okay. Asimov. Oh, goodness, you're going through like, the... Asimov, I'm not an author I have read recently. Again, another yeah. author from before I started writing about science fiction. However, I sort of weirdly like some of his odd takes on the new wave movement and how it was a movement which he sort of disavowed but then tried to write because it was popular at the time. right uh philip jose farmer farmer is somebody i like i like it because it is very transgressive for the 1950s and as for short stories which are really 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 speak to me the stories in strange relations the the collection include mother, daughter, father, son, my sister's brother. All of those are fantastic about weird alien entities and human explorers who are unable to understand the other. Joanna Roos. Joanna Roos, we who, are, we who are about to has been long overshadowed by the female man. We who are about to stabs a jagged knife into the idea of being stranded on an alien planet. Uh, Le Guin. Le Guin is an absolute favorite of mine. I recently read uh, her fantastic take on cloning, Nine Lives, 1969. Mm, which was in The Future is Female, I believe. Um, was collected in that. Uh, Spinrad. Spinrad is another uh, favorite of mine. Uh, probably The Iron Dream. Again, I have a running vendetta. I shouldn't phrase it like that with sword and sorcery. And he points out that sort of constructs of the alien as this monoculture with only good or bad is by its very nature, very racist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Maltzberg? Maltzberg, obviously a favorite. My uh, Revelations is up there, but also uh, I am a huge fan of Beyond Apollo as many are. Got it. Uh, Clifford Samack, too early? No, I've read, I've read uh, quite a bit of his work. As for recently, Why Call Them Back from Heaven, 1967. Why Call Them Back from Heaven, a fascinating take on immortality. In this case, a society transformed by the promise of immortality, which has not been realized. All right three authors who I have not mentioned who you think everyone should read. John Shirley. 
you mentioned it earlier in the podcast. I had lunch City with come, him last week. I had dinner with City, him. City come walking, this early pseudo, pseudo cyberpunk take, nothing, nothing sort of pulsates with the intersection, the intersection of sort of music. And I found it a really positive take on uh, gay subculture, which is not something terribly present in science fiction. Now, see, I didn't bring up John for a couple of reasons. One, because he's my homie and um, because um, he's my absolute favorite living author. So like, I I just, I was like, if you said something negative, I was going to be like very heartbroken. So I'm glad that you went, went there with uh, City Come Walk. And you want another one, another one, Uh, Josephine Saxton, Josephine Saxton, the heroes Gamos of Sam and Ann Smith, 1969. A very fascinating take on it's it, it I, I'm a, a sucker for very overtly allegorical stories which don't explain the world that much. Mm-hmm. And you sort of have to piece together the strange rituals which are occurring. Okay, and one more. One more. Uh Eleanor Arneson. I recently read The Warlord of Saturn's Moons. I do not think a better story has been written about the idea of writing science fiction. Interesting. Well, I'm really uh, excited to read. I I just got um, the Maltzberg Cam O'Donnell uh, Gathering at the Hall of Planets, which is very much about science fiction. And I'm, yeah, that's the edition I got. I just got that. So um, yeah, maybe we'll have to do a podcast about that if we're both going to be reading it soon. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm, I, I love when they, when a, an author can get very good and meta about science fiction. Um, uh, PKD's a, attempt at his first outline for the zap gun that he didn't end up writing was, was very much a, a meta sci-fi text. And then he ended up just ejecting that outline, which of course I'm writing for writing about it for my, um, unfinished PKD book. So, um, but I, oh, I just teased the book, which I haven't really mentioned publicly very much yet. But that's the one I'm working on. Um, so uh, anybody? So okay, that's good. Um, we have, I think, we have a good foundation. So, how can people engage with sci-fi, um, sci-fi ruminations, and and um, you know, what kind of engagement are you looking for from people? Do do you want suggestions from people? Like, what what kinds of things? Like, how do you? Uh, you know, how do you suggest people engage with your site? So over the the decade of plus of my site, I have created a pretty active community on the site of commenters. And while the the exact specific people might flit in and out over the years, there is a always almost always in in all the reviews a fascinating discussion. And I, I really, really enjoy deep diving into texts and having discussions based on the specifics of a review or the author or discussions which come out of it. And so interaction on my site is, of course, my preferred. And But all interaction is wonderful on Twitter, whatever it might be um, as well. All right. So tell the folks how they can find you. So on Twitter, it is it is at sci-fi ruminations, SF ruminations, and on my website is science fiction and other suspect ruminations, and those are the two best ways. All right, uh, Joaquin Boaz, welcome to this podcast. This is I, this is your first podcast, right? Indeed. Yeah. Well, maybe hopefully we'll, we, we will have broken you out to a new world and <laughs> there are so many great sci-fi podcasts and your breadth of knowledge is, is really something that um, I think listeners will enjoy. And I, you know, I'm definitely going to have you back. Uh, I see in the future as uh, we're going to be winding down soon with dickheads because we're getting close to the end of in fact, we've slowed down. If people haven't noticed, we've slowed down to kind of mm-hmm. extend things out. And so I'm going to start to do more classic books as series on postcards, uh, just because also I don't have to be so dick adjacent about everything. I can just do what the hell I want. So uh, so maybe a Cam O'Donnell uh, episode coming up or, uh, you know, 
we I, I'm starting to read uh, Walter Miller's uh, three novella collection here soon. So we'll see. I've got some interesting things coming up and uh, I'm definitely anything keep... on depressed astronauts. I'm in depressed, I did my depressed, astro... Astro... depressed astronaut series. Walter Miller came up multiple times. Interesting. In the hoofer, the hoofer. Yeah. The death of the spaceman. Uh, depressed astronauts. That's interesting. I, I well, um, I wrote a depressed astronaut story actually mm -hmm. in my short story collection. So, um, so I, I've been there. Uh, but I think Maltzberg really takes the cake with <laughs> with Beyond yeah, Apollo. That's, that's where my love of the theme comes from. Yeah, Beyond Apollo. Yeah, and we did a special episode on that one on uh, Dickheads that people might want to check out. So, um, all right. Uh, yeah, and I'm sure you've got a great review for Beyond Apollo. In fact, I'm going to run and read it right now. So uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's nice to talk to a fellow Hoosier, um, not to give too much information away. Uh, we shop at a lot of the same used bookstores. I've got a lot of the books on these shelves came from Caveat Emptor. So, um, <laughs> you know, and you know what's weird is I was on the train coming back from Portland the other day, and there was a guy who used to work at Caveat Emptor who was sitting in the dining car. And uh, he saw my Powell's <laughs> City of Books. And then he said, uh, oh, I used to work at a bookstore. And then one thing led to another. And he said, I used to work at Heavy Downturn. I'm like, dude, I know I bought books from you. If you worked there for years, I know I bought books from you. So this is kind of interesting. All right. Uh, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And we'll talk again soon.